My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens invading, fluoride in the water, they spray our skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati mind control, they're sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? Proclus defined theurgy as a power higher than all human wisdom, embracing the blessings of divination, the purifying powers of initiation, and in a word, all the operations of divine possession. Baffling. But to better understand this deep field of esoteric practice, I enlisted Ike Baker, who's an author, content creator, ceremonial practitioner, and senior initiate of several lineages within the Western esoteric traditions, including the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the Martinist Order of America, and Blue Lodge and York Rite Freemasonry. With 20 years of study, training, and practice, Ike is also a traveling lecturer, instructor for multiple premier educational organizations, including the Institute for Hermetic Studies. He's also a temple chief of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. He hosts the Arcanum YouTube channel, and he joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and enjoy this conversation with Ike Baker. did not they didn't view nature and spirituality as separate they had no such concept right they arrived at a, at a, a holistic unity of perspective and experience and therefore they didn't fragment their intellective capacity that part of their mind that wants to discover and learn and analyze they hadn't fragmented it the way we have you know we've put it on steroids and isolated it from the rest of the human psyche and it's dehumanizing and it actually makes us more confused because we look around and we can't relate to anything channel and podcast which is available also on youtube and spotify and my bullet points are i am a ceremonial magician concentrate in theurgy i am an instructor of classical theurgy at the institute for hermetic sciences and i have a podcast with our our good buddy sky who is who is just an excellent human being and very fortunately put the both of us in touch because 
I like talking to you. I like, you know, I like listening to you, actually, which I don't really say very often because <laughs> normally, you know, I'm the one kind of doing the talking, but I find you to be a very inquisitive, open-minded and intelligent human being. So it's always a pleasure to, you know, have that kind of interchange. And so thank you very much for having me. Oh man, thank you for saying that. It means a lot coming from you. And yeah, shout out to Sky on my end as well. I'm equally grateful for the connection. Now, I told the folks a little bit about your resume, you know, some of the things that you've done, but tell us what first drew you to, you know, taking such a dedicated and disciplined approach to what most people just sort of treat as like a hobby or a sort of pet interest. You know, you've taken it to, I think, a realm that most don't. And unfortunately, even, you know, I think maybe I'll ask you this as a follow-up, but, you know, maybe that speaks to why Freemasonry is so important and we need people to sort of take up these arcane sciences. But what drew you initially to become a Freemason and get involved with the various orders you're a part of? Well, Freemasonry was actually the last thing I did in terms of esoteric initiatic lineages. I avoided it like the plague for a really long time because it didn't seem balanced to me without the feminine perspective. But I've since come to understand that kind of support, particularly in our, the current paradigm we're living in the West, that can actually help you be more of a balanced person as a young man, as a man, just in general. You know, all things equal, you know, I don't know if I would have joined it, but really there is a void. There's a vacuum, an empty space, in, you know, in terms of masculinity in a healthy way, you know, in, in today's pop culture and what is available to us. And I don't think that's something that young men should ignore, right? Not to get too dark about it or anything, but I mean, even today, suicide rate in young men is extremely high, you know, and... You know, we're missing these pieces that we're told that we shouldn't pick up. You know, we shouldn't be looking for that. And at the end of the day, you know, it's of supreme importance because as human beings, we are communal. We are communal in nature, whether we like that or not. We are monkey see, monkey do. Regardless of human nature being either good or bad, inherently, human beings are inherently programmable. You know, we call it learning. <laughs> but it's program, you know, you can be programmed. And I think that you need to have a good operating system installed, a healthy one. And I think that in a lot of ways, Freemasonry is about that. It's about rectifying your interior software and being moral, just, upright, fair, honorable, honest, proactive, not, you should not discriminate who is deserving of charity or good, you know, you know, beneficent actions, you know, don't, it's not this kind of like, it just teaches you that every human being in the world has a claim to your kind offices really is the verbiage that's used, not just Masons. So there's, that's what I have found. And also, you know, just to speak on another thing, Masonry has a pendant or co-Masonic bodies that are available to women, like the Eastern Star and Amaranth. So it's not 
this monolithic institution that women cannot participate in any degree. However, I do find that there are some things in life that you will only learn from members of the same sex, of the same gender. Okay, and I think that's true of men. I think that's true of women. There are some things that a man can only learn from a woman and vice versa, that a woman can only learn from a man. But there are some things, you know, when we are when we need affirmation from our elders about parenting, about your job, about, you know, how to be in the world as a young person or as any age, really struggling with the reality that, you know, to be a human. Just a human is a guarantee of injustice of some sort. And so, you know, trying to look to elders to support you and like-minded people and people in your situation is of tremendous importance, you know, and everybody else is all about doing that right now. So why shouldn't we be, you know, so, and that's, you know, masonry, that's, I got into it for that component. I didn't get into it for esotericism because it's the least esoteric, at least ostensibly so. Masonry has, for generations, hundreds of years, been the ark, the box, the nondescript, you know, luggage chest that all of the symbols of the Western esoteric traditions have been able to move through time. It, it literally, it is the 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 just custodian of those teachings because the symbols themselves are the teachings. Everything else is just commentary. The symbols are teachings. So if you carry the symbol through time, which masonry has done, then the teaching survives. And when there are mines, right, fertile ground for that seed to be planted, when there are mines that like we're experiencing now, this very young, esoteric, traditionalist approach to masonry that are ready to unpack that stuff, unfold that information and unfold those teachings, they will. And so that's the incredible thing about masonry. But ostensibly like from you know when you go in really we're doing ritual we're eating dinner we're praying we're socializing and that is a key component of a lot of the other initiatic orders they're missing it so i started out in the hermetic order of the golden dawn which was the you know premier magical society in england and it did migrate over here in the early 1900s there was a lodge in or a temple i should say in in chicago at least there but that is i kind of stumbled upon that i I guess by accident i don't really believe in accidents but uh, i have been an esoteric seeker you know my whole life at least i thought i was really i was studying comparative religions thinking that was esoteric that's very exoteric but you know you got to start somewhere you start by degrees right baby steps if you throw yourself into something the way we can do now with the internet you have no context and without context it's like dropping into a terror a completely unfamiliar territory and you know you may pick up some paths here and there you may But ultimately, you know, you're probably not going to be able to make heads or tails of what you're looking at unless you have the context. So I I feel like my life trajectory was a grooming, a preparation for where I'm at now, because I started out with the most basic stuff, you know, comparative religions, reading all the spiritual classics I could get my hands on when I was in high school, really, about 14 years old. I started reading Dao De Ching and the course of the Bible, the Torah, Quran spiritual literature of Islam and things like that. And I moved forward in in time and I was gradually pulled like a magnet to, you know, this world that I'm in now. 
And it, it happened by accident. I think I've told this story before, but I'll just briefly recap. My aunt had a tenant living in her basement apartment who was a teacher and she threw herself in front of a train. So we had to, my aunt went down there to clean up her apartment and found out that she was a hoarder. So she asked me and a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, to come over and help her remove all the books and heavy objects and furniture and things like that she'd accumulated. So we went there and I saw this one book Actually, I know you're mostly audio, but for anybody that gets to watch, this is the exact book. The Oracle of Kabbalah by Rabbi Richard Seidman. And this is the exact copy. And I saw this, right? This is the what I understand now is the six-rayed star, you know, the seal of Solomon, really, or a star of David. But I saw this and I was like, hey, you know what? I flipped through the pages and I said, can I just take this. It felt really weird because, you know, this was a deceased woman's property, but my aunt said, go ahead. And I read it in a day, just walking around my neighborhood. And by the time I put it down, I had studied Kabbalah before very superficially. By the time I put it down, I really had been impressed with the importance of this thing. And I didn't, I still didn't understand it, but I knew it was important. So I went on the yellow pages or white pages when the internet used to have stuff like that was widely used. It might still be around, but I don't really hear people using it anymore. And I just searched Long Island Kabbalah, right? Because that's where I lived at the time. And uh, this guy's phone number and email came up. I messaged him and I said, hey, I'm new to this, but I'd love to join your study group. And he said, well, that's not really going anymore, but there's this other thing. And that ended up being the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And it was, I actually, I was set up to be initiated and I got cold feet and I backed out. I was a no call, no show. And it was years later because I'm thinking to myself at the time, I didn't believe in magic. I was studying this stuff, but I refused to meet it on its own terms. I had to try and rationalize it in terms of psychology. So when you meet people that think they're doing magic, I'm thinking Harry Potter. That's not what magic is, not by far, but it's also nights. Nice. It's not only psychology. So I kind of ran, but years later, right in life, just in general, the matrix that we live in has a deterministic component, right? Fate. And it has a free will component. It has both at the same time. So it's kind of like, you're going to start here and you're going to end here, but the route you take to get there can be like this. And so that's essentially what I did. I took the long route to where I was eventually irresistibly led and i was initiated into the hermetic order of the golden dawn into the neophyte grade in new york in uh october in fall of 2016 and i did just that for a really long time i got down to north carolina and then it just everything opened up i i joined well i was the funny thing is that i didn't go looking for anything it just kind of came and got me a lot of the time and so i i am now you know senior member of most of these Western esoteric organizations. And so I, I think that I have, right. A lot of people will look at me and be like, wow, this guy's in it. And he knows his stuff, but I'm, I'm, I'm a newbie in the circles I move in, you know? So there are people out there that I'm learning from. I mean, they're Oxford educated, they're Yale educated, they're seminarians, they're influential people, it, you know, and they're constantly, I'm learning from them. So I am at the in the fortunate position to be able to speak informedly on these traditions, where they come from, what they are, and how they work, what they're supposed to do. 
Whereas a lot of people will hang out in the outer door, the outer chamber, the outer order, and they'll eventually get sick of somebody, right? Because they're not, they haven't developed the temperance required to subjugate yourself, really the courage to subjugate yourself to a teacher. Because we live in a society that is so radically individual centered that we tend to miss the point. We tend to shoot ourselves in the foot. This is how knowledge and skills have been passed down since human beings began civilization, began teaching each other things, apprenticeship. And if you can't apprentice to someone because of your own ego, your own will, your own individual desires, then you will not learn anything. That's the truth. You'll have bits and pieces and you'll think, you know, and then that'll be fortified by the ego that made you run. And then you're really in trouble. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) You're painting quite a picture there. And I can relate to so much of what you've already said. It's hard to really take a, a foothold on one particular path. But if I can bring up something you just mentioned about magic and how, you know, it's not quite what we see with Harry Potter and it's not all just psychology. Let's talk about that because I've experienced in my life some major psychological shifts that have felt magical. Once in hindsight, I looked back and said, oh, because I started thinking this way, this avenue of opportunity opened up. Because I started communicating with this people, my level of what I was vibrating on elevated and more corresponding events and circumstances flooded in because of that and i've also experienced the dips too where maybe those friends move out of your life and you're sort of left with you know the people you grew up with who aren't on that vibration and you experience a dip back i've experienced all that so am i sort of generally speaking on the right sort of point there or how would you begin to explain to someone magic because i feel like Magic is something that most people think they have a conception of, but as you put it, it's much more nuanced than maybe what we're given, certainly with Harry Potter and even with Carl Jung and these other types that have kind of brought it into the more academic realm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The thing about Harry Potter and things like that is that ultimately it will stimulate the imagination. And the imagination is typically conceived to be fake. But in reality, it's the image-making faculty, which is why certain scholars have redubbed it the imaginal rather than the imagination, because that has a negative connotation of something that is completely fabricated. But in reality, it's a magical power, you know, And that's the whole thing about magic. We've got everything we need. You don't need a $3,000 sword that some dead mason used. You don't need some, you know, a hazel wand that has to be culled from a tree in a certain, you know, temperate zone at a certain time. You don't need that stuff. I mean, you should experiment doing that stuff and, you know, subject yourself to a discipline where you're looking at these things. But at the end of the day, We have everything that we need. All the tools are just meant to lead you there to that realization because belief is the key. 
we talk a lot about the re-enchantment of our world. And I'm going to go off a little bit here, but we'll get back to your questions. We talk about the re-enchantment of our world. And to me, that smacks of secularism because it basically says, you know, I bought into one worldview for a really long time and the materialist, positive, positivistic, reductionist worldview, the postmodern worldview, which espouses this idea that truth is dead, truth doesn't exist, is spiritually arid and I'm drying up and dying. And you know that, you feel that. So you say, let me toggle, let me switch my viewpoint. So what happens typically is then you're essentially doing what, you know, we do in the West, our, us good consumers. You're trying things out. Nothing inherently wrong with that. But we don't like to commit. We like to have our stuff a la buffet. I want to try a little bit of this. I want to try a little bit of that. And the man who chases two rabbits catches neither. And so... What happens is you end up with this species of disbelief suspension. I don't believe, but I want to believe. So I'm just going to suspend my disbelief. And that will never lead you to belief. I mean, who knows? It may. I might be off base by saying it, it will never. But that ba- if you don't somehow shift that mindset into true belief, which really is called from experience, right? Gnosis. And then after that, you don't have to believe anything. You know. You know, experientially, you know, spiritually, that these things are real. That's how it happened for me. That's how it happens for most practitioners. But the magical worldview is something that is inherently saturated with belief. Inherently, you know, just everything, every crevice of this universe is filled with the miraculous and with magic. And that's true, right? I mean, we're floating on a rock nobody get mad at me for not saying a disc please i'm just this is just me here it's just an analogy but we're floating on a rock in outer space circling the sun anyway you cut that that's in it's a miracle that anything happens ever that's insane life is miraculous and we've lost touch with that because what we've done is we've torn the miraculous we've torn its roots out of the ground and its roots are our belief in a higher power, um, whether you conceptualize that as God, and they use a lot of, you know, so faux sophisticated arguments about why religion and faith is bad. Yeah, everything can be bad. Everything can be good, right? It's how we use it. And if you're just going to focus on the most negative examples, that can be done about anything. People talk about the oppression of Christianity and the Crusades and, you know, the Inquisition. We're looking at Oppenheimer now. I mean, we've vaporized men, women, and children in a matter of minutes. What did that? Science? Well, maybe. But in reality, it's the zealousness of human beings. That's what we don't like. That's what we're fighting. We're chasing our tails, pointing at this, that, some other manifestation. It's within us. It's, it's the urge to eradicate all opposing worldviews. And some people find some people embrace that out of just like this, this socioeconomic Darwinism, like, well, you know, they better die out or they're going to come for me. And other people masquerade in some sort of virtue cosplay, you know, but (laughs) these this is the crux of why we can't really come to an understanding of magic. We have 
lobotomized ourselves with the postmodern worldview and with the way that the academic institutions are continually brainwashing us, training us to look at the world through a single perspective lens when that's not how things are in actuality. It actually estranges us from being able to relate and see a holistic picture, right? Because we're hyper-focused on the details. Um, And then you need to be able to pull out and have the bird's eye, have the context, right? That's how nothing operates in a vacuum. Alistair Crowley, not a fan by any stretch, but he had one tome that, or one book that was fairly lucid, and it's because somebody else arranged it for him. I think he had like a personal secretary typing it up while he kind of walked around either high on hashish or cocaine, you know, stream of consciousness, but she organized his thoughts. And so this one book called the Libra Four or Book Four actually has some useful stuff in it. And one of the, one of the great analogies he puts in there is that in the suit, in the, in, in the tarot, the suit of either daggers or swords, depending, it's re- it represents the intellectual mind. And it's a very fitting symbol, right, for the intellectual mind, because the intellectual mind is it analyzes. Now, we don't remember the archaic usage of that word. You, if I say analyze to a modern person, they think, oh, I'm going to data scrape and crunch the numbers and really think about it. And analysis means to take apart. That's what that word means. Okay. Synthesis means to put it back together. So the the intellectual mind loves to take shit apart. And that's why it's conceptualized as something which cuts. But here's the rub. You cannot arrive at holism. You cannot arrive at a picture of unity by cutting things into ever smaller pieces. So we have to backtrack and adopt a species of pre-modern thought in, in order to understand magic, because it really transcends explanation. Although there are many things I can say about it, many things great people have said about it. But we have to adopt this pre-modern way of thinking about stuff. And that's not to say abandon the stuff we know, abandon our current perspective lens. It's just to allow both to exist and have their individual domains of authority in your life, right? Because you can't just say my subjective experience is incorrect. It's a fallacy. It's the only fucking thing you have. You die with your subjective experience. You don't die with the facts. And most of the time, you know, as time goes on, you realize I never had the fucking facts to begin with. You know, and that's not because there there is no capital T truth. There is capital T truth. You're preventing what well, if we persist in the models in, that have been trained into us, then we are preventing ourselves from being able to recognize and see capital T truth, which is right at the tip of our nose. But like I say, we've lobotomized ourselves with the wholesale adoption of our modern or our postmodern relativistic, overly skeptical right? Out of balance worldview. So what is magic? Well, magic is everything. You know, I would say that the shittiest definition is, you know, a magic is causing change to occur in conformity with the will. But if that's the case, so is picking your nose, putting your socks on, you know, and it's true. We, the, a human being is magical. You know, we're, we're miraculous. We have the potential for great heights, but we're fixated on all the bad shit we do. And the bad shit that other people do to us. And so that prevents us from reaching for the heights. We typically tend to either, you know, go low or stay where we are. 
but we live in a physical universe that is constantly in motion. There is no such thing as stasis. You're either moving upward or downward, whether you realize it or not. So you might as well attempt to improve. And that's not pious moralizing. You know, it's, that could be something like learning magic that brings you closer to a state of dynamic equilibrium. Less all over the place, less at extremes, you know, and more focused, honed in touch with what and who you truly are. And so the thing is, in this worldview, the magical worldview, which has been passed down to us from, I mean, I used to roll my eyes when people say it was like since time immemorial, but it's true. This worldview exists as far back as we go in the historical record. It just does, you know, and I'm sure it exists before then, but we don't have, we don't have the records, but at the, you know, at the very beginning, it's there. And so the, it's predicated on the idea that the physical is just, it, there's the material and the spiritual, for lack of a better term, I'm putting it simply. Now, if I move the material and put it over here, spiritual goes with it. It's, they're two sides of the same coin. So there's no physical act. There's nothing material you can do that doesn't have some kind of spiritual consequence and vice versa. There, these things, if you're, if you study the occult arcana and arcana, you know, they're called mysteries for a reason, you know, and one of the things particularly that theurgy pushes you towards is to transcend the rational mind, not to abandon it, but to refine it and heighten it to, you know, you, you literally have to study everything to be a good, you know, theurgist, a good ma magician, and then you have to let it go. And that's one of the things that will guide you to a definition of magic. Now, there's certain things, you know, you could call it quantum spirituality. You could call it subtle energy. But there's all sorts of spiritual architecture, causal architecture at work in a human being. You know, there's etheric energy, otherwise known as chi or prana. You know, there's the astral, which is the realm of the collective imagination. I think you might have called it the collective unconscious. And, you know, that has persisted since shamanic times. But, you know, that, I mean, that's an episode in and of it. That's probably a four-part series, What is Magic? I did make a pretty good first episode about some of those topics on the YouTube channel. It's just called What is Magic? But ultimately, you know, it's something that you have to experience, but I would say it's the next step in human evolution. Wonderful. Yeah. And it does feel like it's something that we, for however unlearned over the past, maybe hundred to a thousand years, there's a process of unlearning this and maybe science has played a large role in that. But when it comes to maybe the broad strokes of magic, would you see theurgy as a sort of, I don't know, underneath that larger umbrella of magic maybe one of many ways to interact with the world with magic you know i mean to put technique or practice to it right it becomes several different things right magic is sort of all-encompassing in that way but when it comes to theurgy you know how would you distinguish that from magic or other forms of magic intention a theurgist's intention is to perfect themselves, not perfect yourselves according to the standards of worldly paradigms. You know, there's a lot 
of overlap between magical communities nowadays and like self-improvement, new thought, nothing wrong with that. But that shouldn't be taken as an end in itself from a spiritual perspective. You know, there's a lot of people that see like Russell Simmons and like Oprah, Deepak Chopra, millionaires, billionaires talking about their meditation, you know, their yoga classes. And so people's minds are just like, oh, maybe I should become spiritual. Maybe that's why they're successful. Typically, the hustle made them successful. And then when they had the time, the leisure time, they became interested in things like yoga and TM, etc. But really, it's about the difference between theurgy and other forms of magic is about intentionality. Like I said earlier, are you going up or are you going down? Because I don't care what you think, you're not standing still. You know, and theurgy is going upward. Now, it's going upward, so to speak. And there is a path of ascent. Uh, and we can get into that. But there's a quote-unquote path of ascent. But ultimately, it's to come back down and, you know, square the circle, so to speak. Or circle the square. Spiritualize matter really initiate the world if you can from your own you know in your own sphere of influence but you can't that's a very highfalutin sort of you know ideal and there's all sorts of ego traps in that so ultimately it's an ascent of perfection in terms of healing and rising to the full potential of what a human can be in some systems, they call it fully human. In other systems, they call it more than human. <laughs> and then not to just dissipate, you know, and but to quote unquote come back down, so to speak, and to heal the sick and that for free. And so <clears throat> other types of magic are more, I call them demiurgy. We can get into that, but theurgy and demiurgy, right? Theurgy is God working. Theoria in Greek. Theoria is a more craftsmanship it's a technique a skill like any other doesn't it's not predicated on spiritual development it's predicated on can you buy this incense can you focus can you say these words can you summon these spirits but that doesn't necessarily take a whole lot of to just call those things forth does not take a whole lot of power it just takes skill it takes learning something right you learn this trajectory of magic but the intentionality and therefore the safeguards are very different as one opposed to the other. But in short, Demiurge, he says, I want this. I need a better job. I need a wife. I need a boyfriend. I need this. I need, I want. And the whole time you're just adding karma. You're making a fucking mess. You feel powerful. Yeah, but falling on, falling feels like flying, doesn't it? <laughs> so you for until you're like you know a couple of yards from the ground so theurgy says it's not about me maybe it starts as a need for self-improvement maybe it starts as this high ideal maybe it starts for the same reasons as demiurgy did i'm unhappy with my life i'm bored i want to improve there's got to be something more and that's okay because it's sometimes it's our worst inclinations that take us to the foot of the holy mountain, to our greatest work. You know, God uses all these things, whatever you want to call it, the universe source, whatever your term for this higher power is, it will use everything. 
uses good and uses bad. We're too small a cog and too large a machine to be able to say what that thing considers good. I like to say it a lot, you know, like one good can spawn a thousand evils and vice versa. One evil could spawn a thousand different types of good. And I think the longer you live, the more you see that. But really the fear just is trying to attain a semblance of balance in the world. And, you know, there are what is called the ladder of virtues. Right. This is very old. This is not stuff that is new. This is, this, these are ancient techniques and philosophies, but I would say most readily accessible in the, you know, Neoplatonism of the first few centuries of the common era, that is the late Platonists in the regions of the Mediterranean and, you know, the broader Mediterranean places like Greece, places like Alexandria, Egypt, Syria, you know, Tyre, all these places. They had philosophers that were working within a Platonic tradition because Plato is the, well, he's the guy. He's the nexus point. You know, every couple of hundred years, you get one person who brings all the knowledge of the forebears and it somehow it gets retained in the future. You had Plato, Zosimus of Panopolis, and then Cornelius Agrippa, etc. They're just great funnels for this stuff. Right. And Plato was brilliant. So you had you you had the Neoplatonists in the first few centuries of the Common Era working in this paradigm, and they developed theurgy. Really, really, it becomes it's talked about you know kind of earlier than Iamblichus, but Iamblichus is the one who really develops it. And from that point on, the Platonic schools kind of stop teaching philosophy as we know it and they're doing ritual theurgy now they had to kind of reintroduce by the time of damascus one of the scholars i believe the last scholar he had to reintroduce that is the head of the platonic school that's what they were called he had to reintroduce like basic you know theoretical contemplative philosophy to the platonic school because people were really taking to iamblichus's theurgy and what is basically constructed is this thing called the ladder of virtues and they have this really interesting ascending scale which basically you start at the natural or the physical and you go up you progressing as you go on you know some people say retaining the lessons that you had learned the previous virtues and bringing them up the ladder and other people saying just moving upward and they start with the mundane and the immediate and they eventuate in the hieratic or theurgic virtues, which is, you know, a species of ascent or transcendence at that point. you It's really the, the perfection of oneself by union with the divine. Right. Right. And you mentioned how Plato's significance is still felt to this day. Many of his dialogues are still taught. And it's very interesting, you know, how he formed the first academy. And, you know, I certainly wonder what he would have thought of today's modern iteration of that. The universities, Ivy League and otherwise. Sure, there are great scholars, many of whom you've talked to, who delve into these realms that come from those institutions. But 
they seem to be an exception rather than a commonality with at least the Ivy League schools. And it, as far as I've studied, it seems like at the beginnings of schools like Harvard, Yale, Oxford, and Cambridge, there were learned men of the arcane esoteric sciences, people who identified as Freemasons and Rosicrucians and all sorts of other sects, you know, just filling these institutions at the beginning. So, yeah, I wonder what Plato would think of today's institutions. I mean, yeah, I could only speak to really, you know, use that as an opportunity to vent my own frustrations. <laughs> but I, you know, the thing is that it, when Plato formed the Academia, it was not the same. It wasn't really structured the way a university or academy or college we think of today. It was basically a loose affiliation. And some of the names they had for people that were involved in it were like friend, companion, you know, disciple. The lines blurred between two teacher and student. And one of the things that Plato, and this is where people kind of get tripped up because they read his dialogues and they just kind of consider it his manifesto. This is what he believed. Well, even within the dialogues, there's inconsistency. And a lot of the later philosophers within the Platonic tradition, you know, I think it might have been Porphyry, but one of them famously wrote, even Plato does not speak consistently upon these matters. And it's because he was trying to generate a dialogue and he didn't necessarily want to teach you what to think so much as he wanted to teach you how to think. And so the seven liberal arts of the classical education, that's what that system does. And guess where that came from? Plato. It came from his Republic. Philosophers and theologians formally systematized the seven liberal arts as a classical form of education, but they are called from Plato's Republic because they teach you how to think. And they're called liberal because libera in Latin means freedom, free. They make you free. Um, and so that's what Plato was attempting to do. He did have his own beliefs, but it was a loose affiliation of fairly wealthy men in, in Greece. Again, you know, we have this really mixed up idea about like what the wealthy have been. We try to sort of like retrospectively paint everybody with the brush of our own times, which really fucks us up because then again, you're losing the context. When you lose the context of history, you are doomed to repeat it. And what we like to do is just consider that the nobility of all classes of, at all time have been Game of Thrones rapey. And <laughs> it's just not the truth. The truth is that the nobility, the noble classes in many civilizations at many different times have been the ones who had to go to war, have been the ones that had to know how to fight, had been the ones that had to do charity to benefit the city. And during this time, that was largely the case, right? Athens particularly being, you know, not democratic the way we think of democracy, but that's where the idea comes from. So you... You rose based on your own merits at that point. You know, there was still an opportunity for the cream to rise, although there were definitely ensconced, you know, familial institutions based on wealth and things like that. But the thing is, like, you could be exiled if you didn't treat people right. You know, so the, the, just because it was wealthy sort of upper class people in Athens doesn't 
it doesn't have any negative connotation to it. Actually, that infer, we can infer from that that it was the best and brightest because it could have, you know, they would have been educated. But the thing about Plato's Academy is that he brought people together, whereas like education was largely at that point like a one to one tutorship, you know, but it was a place for open discourse. And and that's, you know, I think the word that they used at the time or one of one of the students or associates said that Plato had used was Aeon, which basically means think tank. That's what the academy was, a think tank. Whereas now let's take all that information I just vomited up at you. And now let's juxtapose that against let's contrast it against what's going on in the universities now. They don't want to teach you how to think. Right. They don't want that. They want to teach you what to think. And I went to a private college, a public university, like a state school. I went to a vocational school and I went to a community college. So I have had, you know, the tour of all of these institutions over the course of a very long period of time. I went back to school late in life when I was 30. So, you know, I do know from experience the group think that is not only encouraged, but is rewarded. And when you attempt to buck that system, you are punished. And really, if there's a mind disease, let's call it for the sake of just using a friendly analogy that I like to call postmodernism, I would say that the big gaping wound where all of that infection is really festering is in the modern academic institutions. And like you were saying, I don't believe they started that way, but at a certain point, right? Money talks, you know, money will make you it, you know, you can, everyone has a price. It's a fucking truism, you know? <laughs> so you can, in, especially here, if you have enough money, I mean, we've seen people buy their way out of murder, you know? So I really think that the tides have changed. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't know how that happened, but if we just take what we really understand about Plato's Academy, and then we juxtapose that against the hierarchical nature, the highly commodified, but Plato never ch- charged money while he was alive he did not charge like subscription fees tuition fucking buries you in debt before you can even make a living so it's basically like everything else it's a dark inversion of our past what was once good and the funny thing is you get all these people running around patting themselves on the back saying look how good we have it look how good we've done in reality we're living in a dark age of our own making and we're not going to understand this because we've got a lot of fucking toys yeah, yeah, well said. I definitely agree. I think we're in a sort of digital dark age, you know, illuminated by LEDs. And I really hope that this is the maybe the blunt edge of a double-edged sword. And maybe we see our pendulum swing into a brighter future because of, you know, all of the turmoil and really darkness that we're kind of in right now, you know, looking back at history, it does seem to sort of follow this cycle where, you know, there were once great advanced civilizations that fall due to cataclysm and then rise again. I mean, do you subscribe to this notion? I mean, maybe this is something you can speak to as somebody who's studied these. And as you put at the beginning of our conversation, Freemasonry is like this luggage carrier of symbols from the past. And, you know, maybe... That's part of why so many successful people have 
you know, associated or found them themselves in Freemasonry and or found their success after becoming a Freemason because these symbols have such charged potential and, you know, have existed time immemorial. Yeah, absolutely. The th- well, Freemasonry also inculcates the seven liberal, seven liberal arts. It literally, it encourages you, it explicitly encourages you in that direction. At a certain point, which is, you know, learning how to think for yourself to be free. Here's the thing. As a student of history, you should be, <laughs> if things have been really good for most of your lifetime, you should be scared. <laughs> you know, I think most students of serious students of history, you know, somebody, I'm talking like somebody like Dan Carlin. People like that can see what's happening way before it anyone else and not only that but they we kind of have i mean not to include myself in this i don't consider myself at the level of dan carlin but i have still had it's been ominous since i was about 14 is when i really kind of woke up and you know you go through those preliminary stages of awakening where you have this kind of fucking santa claus complex you lied to me, you know, like, and you just run to the opposite. I mean, it's a period, as Mark Stavish says, who's a you know, brilliant writer and a good friend of mine, he calls it therapeutic blasphemy. You go through this period, but the problem is a lot of people stay in that counterculture therapeutic blasphemy and they never grow up and they never heal. And therefore they're never able to see the reality of the situation, which is that they've just, they've abandoned one pack of lies for another. <laughs> You know, so that's why things continue to repeat them. History continues to repeat themselves itself. And the thing is that in the material realm, and this is an occult, an occult teach, it's an occult truism. We live in a realm of duality. Granted, it's generated, emanated, suspended from an ultimate unity. And beyond that into, I mean, an unfathomable empty plenum. But... While we're here, we live in a duality. And to ignore that fact is not only absurd, it's foolish. Because you cannot navigate the world in any kind of... You have to have in the back of your mind, yes, there's a unity. Yes, we're all one on some level. But to dissolve into that one or attempt to do that will either lead in failure or madness. You have to remain grounded in the duality, but you have to learn how to live rightly. In the spirit of unity, while in duality. That's what everybody's clamoring about. But when you see the duality that is inherent here in the physical universe, it really leads you to an understanding that this entire place only exists because it is a dipole. You know, the only way we can quantify light is by darkness. We have to contrast everything. Otherwise, nothing can exist. You know, if it was... It it just, the material universe is suspended. It's built on this idea of polarity and opposites. And then the spectrum in between those opposites and the interplay and exchange between them is what creates material life. And we see that even in like microbiology, you know, it's in science, it's in art, it's in everything. It's in nature. So to ask for good times to be here always is to ask for eternal daylight. Which in and of itself will become oppressive. 
And you have to understand that there is no eradication of good. There is certainly no eradication of evil. They will continually morph one into the other until this whole fucking party's over with. And that's just what it is. We see that constantly. You know, it was like the Democratic Party, you know, formerly that was for free speech. Now they're against it. You know, it's kind of always morphing into its opposite. Everything, all the time, everywhere. And that's going to happen eternally. Now, if you're asking, do I think good will come? I think, yes, eventually, right? As I said earlier, one evil could spawn a thousand goods. You know, it's true. It's really true. Sometimes the worst thing has to happen for you to learn to transform yourself. And so that terrible thing becomes an ultimate good. Your life may not have become as beautiful because of it. The same, the opposite is true of something good could lead to be other people may experience nine or 10 different terrible things because, you know, you got the money or you got the job or you survived, you know, and they didn't or their children didn't. You know what I'm saying? It's like we we tend to think way too fucking black and white about this kind of stuff. So, yes, I do think good will come from it, but I don't think personally and I hope I'm wrong. And if I am, I hope somebody comes up to me and just points in my face and laughs. I give anybody full permission. But at this point, I think the way out is the way through. And I'm not certain that in my lifetime, we will see in its full, fullest expression, the good results of these evil causes. Yeah, I certainly respect that notion. And I don't blame you for holding that. Now, I wonder, though, you know, if we're sort of in this progressivist mindset when it seems to me and correct me if I, if you see it differently, but it seems to me like nature is in this sort of theurgic relationship where, you know, a sort of obstacle can be adapted to. And, you know, these creatures, uh, large and small, usually the smaller ones are better at evolving, uh, overcoming, but, you know, they've endured and we as more complex organisms have this more complex necessarily relationship with divinity and maybe that's why we have this I don't know this extension I guess you can call it but it seems to me maybe that there was a more natural understanding of this the further we look in the past as you were saying before with magic being kind of inherent to people at a certain point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole thing. You know, ancient peoples did not, they didn't view nature and spirituality as separate. They had no such concept, right? They arrived at a, at a holistic unity of perspective and experience. And therefore they didn't fragment their intellective capacity. That part of the their mind that wants to discover and learn and analyze. They hadn't fragmented it the way we have. You know, we've put it on steroids and isolated it from the rest of the human psyche. And it's dehumanizing. And it actually makes us more confused because we look around and we can't relate to anything. You know, so back then they had a holistic idea of everything because they, it just was, you know, they did not subjugate the locus of existential authority, which is your subjective experience. They didn't 
banish that to the outer darkness. So when you do that, there's no fucking compass. You have no internal compass. Up, down, black, white, right, wrong. You have no idea. You have to rely on, you know, studies (laughs) by people with the same faulty fucking software, (laughs) you know? And so that's dehumanizing. It's literally dehumanizing. We become estranged from our environment when we do that. But I think that if you really look back, you see what really happens is at a certain point, I'm speaking now from the like Hellenistic tradition, which is a beautiful synthesis of Greek, Egyptian and Roman religion and culture that took place, you know, in the greater Mediterranean region. But principally, the germination point, the seed point was the port city of Alexandria, because that's the city that's the city that Alexander the Great founded when he conquered Persia and won Egypt with it. So he brought all those things there. And then, you know, obviously he lived a very short life. His generals, you know, the wars of the, I think called the Diadoche, the wars of Alexander's generals vying for territory, Ptolemaeus winning control of Egypt, and then eventually installing the Ptolemaic dynasty of which Cleopatra was a part, and then Rome coming in and taking over. So there's a whole lot going on there, but it's Egypt, still Egyptian focused. And these people, I mean, they conceived of magic as primary, right? I mean, so Ra, their solar day he's got this bark this boat and he you know he's representative of the sun the solar source light heat life order you know that's what that god conceptualized and he sails through the skies and then at night through the underworld and he's got a retinue or uh, entourage of gods that are on that boat with him and those gods are conceived of as being essential to the generation and maintenance of the cosmos. And foremost among those gods is the god Heka, magic. And so magic was foremost among the generators and maintainers of the physical cosmos. That's how intertwined these things were for them. And what they did was, and Dr. Shannon Grimes has done amazing work on this. Actually, I interviewed her on my podcast. She's done great work because she's been one of the scholars that has sort of found a niche in this, I believe, fourth or fifth century Egyptian scribe priest who was in charge of, you know, scribal duties for the craftsmen who were dying metals for Egyptian statuary. And so he writes extensively on what becomes alchemy at that time. And it branches forth from various forms of Hellenism and Hermetism. You know, the body of work attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, which was Egyptian and Greek. So he talks about, you know, it's an, and it's not even just him. You see it throughout hermetic literature to the modern day brian cote noir he's another great example of somebody who gets this stuff and transmits it in his writing but it's essentially that they find that the there are patterns in nature right nature is essentially cognate with the egyptian word for god and goddess Netcher. you know necheru is the god's plural Netcher is god Nature, nature. So you had these priests that were really stratified into a micro society, the priest class. They were educated and all that stuff, but their special purview was, you know, learning about the specific 
actions and jobs of each god in the maintenance and creation of the universe. And so what they were really studying was nature. They were studying what it did. What is this god? Okay, this god's in charge of night and day. This god's in charge of growth and decay. This god's in charge of the rhythms of the movement. And out of that grows this proto-scientific investigation. Of, of everything around us. And so the, these priests, they stratify into micro societies. You had physician priests, you had scribe priests, you had metallurgist priests. Okay. You can see a lot of this stuff in the Ebers papyrus, stuff like that. But one of the things that they discover is that there is an inherent pattern behind nature. Okay. And in alchemy, that's conceived of as the tria prima, salt, sulfur, and mercury, and the way that these things, and that is positive, negative, neutral. Now, neutral doesn't mean it contains negative, nothing. It means that it's more androgynous. It contains both. It's, it has the positive and the negative and can be either, can bond with either. And so, really, they apply this to material investigation, and out of it comes all sorts of healing ointments and all sorts of, you know, bombs and health tonics, potions, things like that. Out of it comes different kinds of metallurgy, operative alchemy later on. And then they apply this to spiritual regeneration at a certain point, right? If everything has these, you know, fractal and holographic principles, then it's got to be applicable to everything. And so they apply it to, you know, the later, particularly the Neoplatonic philosophers, Amblichus, he kind of gets tired of the Greek philosophers having to over-rationalize everything and just getting mentally, you know, intellectually fat, gorging themselves on information. And he says, look, the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Chaldeans, right, the Assyrio-Babylonian peoples, they had these religious rites that incorporated all this stuff, but ultimately transcended it. And so out of these traditions forms, you know, ritual theurgy, which embodies all the knowledge, embodies all the philosophy, right? You're climbing that ladder of virtue and you're starting in the natural, you know, things like your physical body, your health, your strength, your well-being, physical, you know, like earth plane stability. And then you move to ethical ways of being in the world around you that are respectful, honorable, upright, right? That's a big thing in masonry. You move to ethical or the, I'm sorry, the political or civic your relationship to the community, the institutions around you. Can you govern yourself in that microcosm in a way that's beneficial and balanced? And then you move to the philosophical virtues, which are purificatory, contemplative, something that they call paradigmatic, really. That's a very abstract concept. And then finally, the seventh virtue that Iamblichus adds to the previous six platonic ones is the theurgic or the hieratic. And that's essentially perfection of the soul through mystery rites. Right. Right. And it's interesting now, again, going back to what you were saying before about how we have this over skeptical, over analytic mindset. You know, people try to explain the mystery school or the mystery cults as, oh, well, they were on psychedelics. That's how they received this higher knowledge. How do you take that theory? I mean, do you ascribe to that? I mean, there has been evidence that sort of thing was going on, but I don't know that was the, you know, totality of what was being dispensed at the mystery schools. It wasn't purely a drug den. 
No. Well, also, you got to remember, drugs were not manufactured the same way na- they are now. So it's like, yeah, there couldn't have been a drug then. You know? But right. the thing is, you know, I've got a, some very good friends that espouse this idea. And I, here's what I'll say based on my own experience. I've been to all those places. I've been to Eleusis where they claim that, you know, they got the ergot from because of the crops that grow on the fields there. And I can agree with the idea that it was present to some degree, but that it was not the totality of the experience. We have this again, right? We have this tendency to paint everything with our postmodern brush, right? If you're a, if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So what we have to understand is maybe let's get into that pre-modern mindset. Say, okay, what are drugs? As they understood them back then, had nothing to do with what we think of when somebody says the word drugs today. You, I mean, think about it, right? It's certainly was not for, at least in this context, for leisure. And it was not manufactured wholesale, you know, widely distributed. The thing is, because these things can kill you, right? The ancient adage is the difference between medicine and poison is a dose. So these things can kill you and they can heal you. You know, that's one of the reasons the rod of Asclepius, which is the universal symbol for health. I know most of you are thinking about the caduceus rod, but that was a, somebody mixed that up, I think, in World War I. But the rod of Asclepius, if you look it up, it's just a single rod with a single serpent. It's because a snake's venom can heal you or kill you. It just depends on the amount you use the application and whether or not somebody has the wisdom to to employ the right application if i could just stop you for a moment i just want to ask you about that that symbol because it's something that i've noticed in new haven it's at the fence post of the book and snake tomb at one of yale's secret societies their fence post these this big wrought iron fence you know each post is that exact symbol what people now think of as the caduceus which you just corrected and said well originally it was just one snake this has two snakes so i'm curious what does that symbol actually mean with the two snakes going around a sword or a staff or a dagger what have you so that's the caduceus rod or the staff of hermes and i believe he is gifted that by the god apollo the god of the sun because he constructs Hermes, when he is born, he's the youngest of the gods, and he, take, he basically makes the lyre, which is an ancient, you know, stringed instrument in Greece, from a turtle shell. And Apollo is so impressed with the music that he makes and the interest, he gives him the Caduceus staff. The Caduceus staff allows Hermes to traverse all three realms. He's the only god that can do so. So, in other words, Zeus can't really visit Hades in the underworld. He has to send Hermes. And it's by the power of the Caduceus staff that he's enabled to do that. That's what gives him the authority. And you'll find in many Western initiatic rituals, in order to enter the ritual space, you have to have some sort of token like that in order to get in. <clears throat> so a lot of people have compared the, you know, the intertwining snakes around the staff, which is surmounted by a, a ball, a winged kind of disc of some kind too. They conceptualize it as the Gala and Shishumna, the three nadis in, in you know, y- yogic and Vedic or tantric sorts of uh, mysticism. You know, a lot of people have claimed to do a lot of research that links these three. 
I can't say at this point whether or not I'm convinced of that. Um, you know, it's like those paintings you see with all these geo, like people, oh, look at, check out this geometric shape. To, I mean, I could just pull up a vector and do that. I could impose any shape on anything and probably make you like think to yourself for a minute, wow, this was secretly encoded. Y- you can just do that. I mean, you could literally graft anything you want onto anything. It's the nature of the human mind. It's the brilliance of symbols. So we don't really know what the esoteric significance of it was to the ancient Greeks, but we understand things from a mythological context, largely. And now I'm not saying doubt it. I'm just saying that I, at this point, I'm not convinced that's what the Caduceus staff is. You get guys like Eliphas Levy, the French occultist in the 1700s and 1800s, actually, he's writing about the caduceus rod being the staff symbolizing the twin currents of the astralite, the great magical agent. He otherwise calls it azot. Now, we can thank Levy for being generally very obscure about his terms, but there's this one tract, it's very thin, this one treatise, and it's called On the Science of Hermes, I believe. And he states there explicitly that the azot, the magical agent, is nothing less than magnetized electricity, which is essentially he's describing chi. He's he's describing that same force, what, you know, the difference between regular chi or regular prana and kundalini is just that kundalini is like a nuclear concentration of it. And obviously it flows, it sits at the base of the spine and the coccyx and flows upward. It rises in that kind of undulating shape. So I'm not trying to discredit it. I'm just saying I don't really have enough information. If I'm going based on my own experience of Kriya Yoga and kundalini work, sure, makes sense. But from an ancient Greek perspective... I'm not really sure. Again, the brilliance of symbols is the fact that we can extrapolate things, perhaps maybe things that we need right now in our time from that. But it gets essentially confused with the rod of Asclepius because some general that worked for, again, I'm going to butcher this story, but I remember reading it. It goes something like during the First or Second World War, there was you know, a, a ranking military officer in charge of the uh, the medical units and he kind of read or was told that the caduceus staff was a symbol of power or healing and he puts it all over the medical um sort of ambulances the puts it all he basically brands the, the the military medical units with the caduceus staff and that's how we get it everywhere nowadays when it didn't originally mean that right but to just to, re- to sort of return to just before I lose my thought, I would say about entheogens specifically, I would say that they have been, in my own experience, powerful initiated initiators. They're catalysts that break the mind open like an egg so that you can start to think in a different way. They give you, they can, not for everybody, but they can certainly give you a perspective that you would not have had and kind of shake you out of this mundane sleep that we're kind of, we're in a trance, most of us. And it's no guarantee that you won't go back into that trance, right? Because we see that a lot of users, they wake up and now they think, okay, this is the answer. It's a starting point. Like any trauma can be a starting point. It doesn't have to be a psychedelic experience. Do I think that they were incorporated in certain rights? I'll put it this way. I don't think 
I'm not convinced they weren't, but I really do not believe it to be the synchronon. I don't think it to be the main event, as you're saying. It's like, it's just something that maybe catalyzes a spiritual experience for you. But a lot of times, right, these things happen and we leave with more questions than answers. Right. Right. Very well said. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. And uh, yeah, I wonder on the point about the caduceus possibly symbolizing the kundalini, you mentioned having some experience with that form of practice. So this is why I'm going to ask you. I had a really interesting conversation on this podcast only a few episodes ago where my guest, Greg Carlwood, mentioned spontaneous combustion And we talked about it for a bit and he said sort of briefly, you know, one of my thoughts is maybe this is like a misappropriation or a misfire of kundalini energy that can, you know, turn somebody into a ball of fire and leave like half their body incinerated, but the rest of their body, you know, sitting there next to a smoldering pile of ash, you know, some of these pictures of people who have been spontaneously combusted you know it's very odd Uh, their house isn't on fire but they totally are you know incinerated but i don't know this might be a ridiculous sort of idea what are your thoughts i mean could kundalini energy do something like that from my experience and what i understand i am just for anybody my, my specialization is in western esoteric traditions because i live in the west and i think that they they are in sore need of rehabilitation with the over commoditization of them same is true of eastern traditions in the west but i i don't feel like that's my task I'm a Westerner and this is where I've been led. So I work in the Western esoteric traditions, but I have extensive training in the Eastern esoteric tradition. I had training in that stuff way before I got involved in the Western stuff. So I do have experience and I can speak to it. I don't think it's a ridiculous question. Spontaneous combustion for me is something that has completely perplexed me to the point where I'm like, okay, I, I don't know if I can figure this one out. But if we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, kundalini energy. I know that it can be very painful when it's rising, especially if it's rising too quickly. I don't necessarily think that it could have a combustion force, however. Some people claim it has been known to to tear through muscle and cause serious, you know, sometimes irreparable physical damage. I don't doubt that. I guess I would say that I, at this point in my life, I mean, I really don't doubt anything. <laughs> I've been anytime you do, right? It's that was one of the three maxims that was written over the uh, the temple at Athena uh, Apollo at Delphi. Everybody knows, you know, know thyself, right? That was there, and then everybody, you know, a lot. Some people know nothing in excess, but the third axiom was surety brings ruin. The minute you're sure of something, some evidence will come to contradict you. So I use that as a caveat, but I'm not convinced that that Kundalini could make somebody completely explode. I don't doubt the phenomenon of, of spontaneous combustion. I do, however, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you've probably been exposed to a little bit more and more recently, this information, but I feel like all the examples of it that I've been privy to happened somewhere between the 17th and the 1700s and 1800s. So it's like, that made me scratch my head. You know, like, why is it kind of isolated to this time period? You don't really hear about spontaneous 
combustion anymore. Well, I mean, is that something that happens? Yeah, it's funny. I first encountered the topic through Ripley's Believe It or Not, Believe It or Not. And there are photographs of cases of this. So, yeah, it's something that's definitely at least happened within the realm of camera technology being available. I don't hear about it very often, but Greg Carlwood interviewed an author who wrote a whole book about it named Larry Arnold, and he's documented like hundreds of cases of it throughout the 20th and even the 21st century. There have been cases of spontaneous combustion in the past 15 to 10 years. So yeah, I don't, I wouldn't know any like specific details offhand, but if you are interested, I would recommend that interview and then maybe even that book with Larry Arnold is titled Spontaneous Combustion. Excellent. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'll check. I'll definitely check it out. Well, and it's something that another theory that came up, which kind of is can play into a nice segue for a question I have for you, which is, you know, what if spontaneous combustion is the result of some sort of other entities who by accident or maybe intent intersect with us, it's in space and time, and upon intersecting with our third dimensional body, you know, this sort of really tragic effect happens, like something like a plasma being or who knows what, but with that in mind, I mean, how does, you know, your understanding of esotericism, hermeticism and beyond, how does that, you know, train you to interact with these beings? Because I think I can safely guess that you believe that there are other entities out there beyond human, uh, you know, non-corporeal or otherwise. So, I mean... Is your training something that would leave you in a better position to interact with these beings if you had to, or maybe because of your training, you'd rather not? You know, I'm curious about your thoughts on that whole subject of, you know, everything from demons, angels, aliens, like people are starting, at least in this field, to lump them all together into, you know, same category of just like non-human entities, right? I mean, it, it seems like there's... Yeah many different varieties of iterations of this, but what, like, how does your background help you understand that topic? Well, that's a really great question, actually. And it's not a question that, that too many people ask or like to talk about because you end up, I think that you end up stepping on some people's toes that think that want to kind of rationalize this as all psychology. Again, it's partly psychology, but that's not where it ends. And I have personal experience, yes, absolutely, 100% with, you know, essentially disembodied intelligences, spirits for, you know, by any other name. What I mean, you name it, you shadow people, apparitions, everything. You know, I've said, I think the only thing I haven't been abducted and probed by grays, you know, but that might change soon. Oh, but, uh, I'll knock on wood <laughs> for you over here. <laughs> yeah, please. But yes, 100%. The training of the orders of which I am a part is predicated on a very slow, gradual development to be able to interact with not only those entities, but larger forces, etheric forces, astral forces, essentially these subtle tides, tidal forces is what they are, that exist in the universe that, you know, are unseen. I think Agrippa would have called them occult virtues, hidden qualities, that is, you know, occult virtues. In, in Latin just means hidden powers. It's all the occult means. It means 
hidden. I can't see it with my eyes. And so there's training for that. It's kind of how you start out. You need to, you are in the magical worldview, you are a microcosm within a macrocosm. What does that mean? And I've done a lot of work on explaining this, and I'm going to do even more work in one of the upcoming titles that I'm producing a manuscript for, for release in the early parts of 2024 under a Tria Prima Press. But part of the hermetic philosophy, this axiom of as above, so below, comes from a platonic idea called the psychicosmo which means the soul of the cosmos. And people like Agrippa, you know, Baruch Spinoza, Renaissance, Middle Ages, those philosophers, they bring it forward, they give a Latin translation to that as the anima mundi, which means the, it gets translated in English as the world soul. Really, it, it means all of material creation. So the all of material creation, the universe, we would call it, is a gigantic ensouled being that is predicated on very particular patterns, like we were talking about earlier, you know, positive, negative, neutral, things like that. There are many different cosmological models that we use to, to as a system to model that experience. One of them is a catalytic tree of life. Another one is the diagram of the anima mundi from which is called the Ptolemaic model of the universe, which was the dominant model of the cosmos for 1500 years. Again, that comes right out of Plato, book 10 of the Republic in the myth of Ur. He expounds that entire cosmology. So everything goes back to him. But you learn how to deal with that and you understand that, okay, these forces are Whatever's in the universe is within me as well. I'm a little universe. That's what, you know, microcosmos means, tiny universe. And so you have to, the first step is to make you, your sphere of sensation, right? That's a Western esoteric term for otherwise for the aura, which so I'm including the physical body and the auric body, the energetic body. You have to make that more like the macrocosm. You have to rectify the patterns in yourself. The things that are weak, the things that are strong, they have to come into balance. And that's the first step because you won't be able to effectively work or protect yourself. You will crash and burn if you do not model your psyche, model your energies, model your behavior, your perspective lenses on what exists already in nature. Follow her patterns. It's a deeply hermetic idea. And so that because of our basic, you know, our different dispositions, obviously from Heraclitus, we have ethos anthropos daimon, character is fate. What generates that? Well, Porphyry would say that some of the Neoplatonists would say, you know, the planets at the time of your birth, you descend down and you're when you're brought into this earth, when you are birth, it is a snapshot of all those patterns all those stresses, energetic, etheric, physical, all these stresses in this gigantic wheelwork of the, of the ensouled cosmos, you now are a snapshot of that because of where everything was. This is the basis of astrology, particularly Hellenistic astrology. And so we've got to work through that and rectify that because we basically have blind spots and we have overcompensations, we have weak spots. So that's the first stage of initiation in a broader sense. Really, the first stage of initiation is learning to make the cosmic apology, which is in your heart saying, I was wrong. And then kind of going from there, right? You have to break, it's alchemy. 
the negrito, the blackening, I have to subject the, the dross, you know, the heavy, the infused muddled mass of material that is my, you know, my, my psychic sort of disposition in an unpurified, unrectified state. I have to subject that to fire and whatever doesn't burn has to go. That's the blackening. And and so then from there, you're led through a course of initiation, which essentially prepares you for theurgy. And one of the things that gets inculcated is you have you in theurgy, you're working with cosmic powers. What does that look like? Well, you get a little further down and a lot of this stuff is going to be obscure to some people, but I'm dropping these references so that you can look it up reliably rather than watch you know, 15 minute YouTube video on somebody who just learned this shit last month. I want to leave you little breadcrumbs so that you can go take these terms, look them up from a uh, historical context, because this has a rich history. It's not just whatever, you know? So you get into something like the pseudo Dionysian hierarchies and, you know, in later Platonism, early Christianity, and you start seeing correlated these different intelligences. So in other words, like the, you know, and this is a big thing in like the Christian Kabbalah, particularly of Pico della Miranda in the Renaissance in Florence. He starts talking, about, he starts looking at the Kabbalah and basically saying this is a filing cabinet for the universe and each one of these mundane things right has a power and an intelligence and these intelligences these powers these super essential disembodied essences in in, in plato we call them the forms they're termed as angels and archangels right archangelo means ruling messenger that's what that word means okay okay you know, Arche, Arcos means ruler, governor. Angelos means messenger in Greek. So, so you go up these scales and you see that like, okay, the sun is a planetary body, but it has a governing intelligence. And it, it has this hierarchy of intelligences that I can interact with. You know, uh, and at a fairly high level, you know, they would call that the archangel Raphael in some systems. You know, Raphael meaning the, in Hebrew means like the healing of God. So I'm now working with this intelligence, this part of divine unity that has individuated for a specific purpose, a specific role to perform in the universe, which is healing. And so you work with that power, that intelligence, and you use, you know, basically an anthropomorphized conception of it because it is an intelligence. It can appear to you however it wants to. And that's something that I think I need to at least finish this part of the discussion off with is that people jump into this stuff. And one of the biggest dangers is that they think if it presents itself to me in a benevolent, kind, winged, flowery, loving kind of disposition, that's what it is. And when we work with these things, because really we're interacting the space in a human organism that is able to interact with these things is that imaginal faculty. So, and it's not, we're not making it up. It's not in the imagination. It's just, that is the image making faculty of the eye of the mind that they call it. And so that's where these things can appear to us and sort of begin an exchange. And the interesting thing is that really when, after years of magical work, and I guess, you know, for certain people who just have a knack or whatever it is, 
that's really when you see a spirit, when you see an entity in the room, what is happening is that you, a part of your spiritual architecture is becoming aware of that thing. And then the way that it's interacting with the psychic interface of your imaginal faculty is being projected into the room. So it's not necessarily that your physical eyes are necessarily seeing something there. It's this kind of projection into the room. And that's something that you work to develop actually in, in, in magical societies and, you know, initiatic orders, I should say, particularly of the hermetic variety. And it's very important that you learn to test these things and that you learn to understand that this thing might not be showing you what it actually is. And it's, it's there's no guarantee, right? It's like, it's like people sometimes, you know, the word demon actually comes from a Greek term meaning daimon, which, so it didn't, or a Greek word daimon, meaning kind of like the root of the word comes from the idea of like splitting or dividing. But the overarching idea behind it is that it's a guiding spirit. It's a tutelary kind of spirit. But And they weren't all evil. They become evil when, you know, Christian dogma says, don't work with any of this shit. Some, in theurgy, you need to get in touch with the diamond. That has to happen. You have to get in touch with your, but what they call the agatho diamond, the guide of good counsel. Because not all of them are good. There's the kako diamondus the guides of bad counsel. And that's what that's really what we would conceptualize as demonic. It's a very low vibrational force. It's something that wants to sort of test you or destroy you. And it will do that in, in ways in which it knows you're weak. And it will present to you in the eye of your mind either a form that is consonant with its nature or is just trying to scare you. So these th- it, there's a lot of flux, and that's why you go through initiatic training, which basically gives you not only the wherewithal and understanding, but the protective safeguards in order to not lead yourself into delusion, in order to not lead yourself into contractual agreements with entities that really are not benevolent, <laughs> right. and and to be able to interact with those things that are good in a, in, and want to help. Are, are benevolent in some sort of meaningful and productive way without losing your mind. Because, and this is where I'll end for this, when you first start doing this stuff and start awakening these faculties, it feels like you're going insane. <laughs> well, and I think you just answered my next question already, which is, you know, can someone go about this alone? Obviously books, podcasts, there's tremendous amounts of resources available to people, but does it still take a village? I mean, do you, should people still go about this with, you know, pro- professionals, so to speak, although I hate to use that corporate word, you know, a better term would be, should people seek out becoming an apprentice or an initiate rather than attempting to initiate themselves? Yeah, I think people who, well, I'll say this. I've done both. To me, it's nice to have a balance. You don't want to adhere to dogmatically forever, but you do need to suspend your own will in order to learn something. You have to be able to say, like, why did you come here? Why did you come to me if you think you know everything? And some people will rationalize it, right? You'll tell them something that they need to hear, that you'll show them something will happen to them that needs to happen for the formula they've invoked. So in other words, if you 
come to an initiatic order and it's invoking maybe let's say an Osirian formula, which is its ritual formula, its dramatic reenaction, reenactment, its intent is to, you know, pull you apart and put you back together again alchemically. That's going to happen. And if that bothers you, you're going to project these things on people. And so it's like, why did you come here and ask for this? And now all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, you, these guys are all full of ego and stuff like that. And it's like, we have to appear that way to you. We're teachers. I'm not your friend. You didn't come here to ask me to go to lunch. You wanted to learn something. So sit down, shut up and listen to me. That's really the big thing where people balk. But you don't have to do that forever. Right. Eventually, the goal is to become you apprentice with a master carpenter. You're not planning to be an apprentice forever. You just have to get to the level where you're a master, where you're proficient. Okay, and so that's what these initiatic orders are attempting to do. So you do want to have that because it's very dangerous otherwise, especially without community. If you begin to isolate while invoking these kinds of formulas, while activating you know, psychic centers and things like that, you will probably go off the deep end at some point. And I'm not saying like, I'm not just saying like dementia, although I know people that that's happened to, or they've become schizophrenic after this work, particularly if they were mixing it with drugs and alcohol, is that, you know, there are inherent dangers, you know, and people who tell you that it's, they're over they're you know, they're, it's overplayed is like, well, what the fuck are you doing, man? Are you just like doing meditation? Because, you know, having walked the path, you know, having lived this, it's like, yes, absolutely. There are dangers that most people don't even suspect that are deeply tied to just like what's already there. Forget spirits. Like you have energy in you that is going to be stimulated and it's going to be like a fire. It's going to be fanned. If you can't handle the behavioral consequences, the behaviors that, that an increase in that energy triggers in you, you could OD, you could become depressed, you become manic. And that's all just spirits aside. We're talking about your own etheric energy at this point. People don't even think about that. So yes, absolutely. You need a professional. You need somebody who has, uh, you know, a minimum of 10 years in, in some sort of formal training. But that doesn't mean that you should become overly dogmatic and at a certain point, right, it's like music. That's kind of what taught me to submit myself to a discipline. I sucked for the first 10 years. I played the drums and played guitar, and but I kept doing it because I loved it. And I became extremely proficient when I humbled myself and sat before a master and learned from them. And you know what? I learned more in two hours than I did in 10 years <laughs> from those people. Right. But then I went out and I made my own music based on what I learned, you know? So it, 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 the, the problem here is ego, you know, it's ego. Everybody believes themselves to be a fucking expert, you know, in, in these communities. And the thing is, it's like the wild west out there, right? It's not academia. There's no peer review. And a lot of this stuff is subjective. You could call bullshit on everything I've just said, and there's nothing I can do, you know, at least without violating some kind of karmic law to, to, to convince you otherwise. So there's a lot of people that can come and just say and do whatever the hell they want. And I will say that people that have not been able to work within a group for a long period of time, look out for them. They are going to tell you that it's because of, you know, other people's egos and things like that. But 
at a certain point, if, you know, if there's something wrong with everybody around you, then guess who it really is. <laughs> you know, you need to be able to work and have community. And that's what I would suggest to somebody starting out. Let's say you can't access an initiatic or you can't find them or they're just not in your area. Find a community, reach out to people, you know, that are out there that, you know, you know, are associated with certain communities or organizations and talk to them. And, you know, it's a 50, 50 shot, but what have you got to lose that they write you back, you know, and find community, talk to them. You're going to need somebody to bounce these ideas off of. You're going to need somebody to vent these experiences to. You know, you can't necessarily go into your therapist and tell them about like, I woke up in the middle of the night and there were three hooded figures, one in a black, one in a blue, one in a green robe staring at me. They're going to put you on medication. <laughs> you know, they're not going to have any spiritual sort of advice for that uh, reality. If, you know, and if it feels like after your work, you begin the work, you start to unravel, stop and see somebody. Right. Always defer to common sense. But also, if you have latent issues with serious mental problems, I would not even I wouldn't come near this work. I wouldn't touch it. If you have an addiction, I wouldn't come near this work, you know, like with to narcotics or alcohol. If you truly have an addiction, I would not even begin. I wouldn't even look in this direction. Yeah, I appreciate the words of caution and the great advice because it is something that many people are being exposed to now especially with you know certain social media accounts that you know typically the more popular the less information they really have not speaking to the value of the content or not because hey i mean it gets people's eyes on this stuff so it could be something that wake someone up but it's just the beginning and yeah we wouldn't want to just throw our lives away on a whim so it's certainly you know advice that i take to heart and i think i've even seen you know that exact sentiment being expressed on podcasts and i thought to myself well exactly what you said you know <laughs> what does that say about you if everybody in the bad, big bad order that you joined was evil like you know i mean at a certain point i think it is a lot of people who just can't stand up to it or maybe they don't have humility or whatever their you know issue is for worse or for better i've been in that position in a fraternity you know through college although it was a very unorthodox situation that I was in, I had to endure the sort of rites of initiation as, you know, sort of mundane as they were. <laughs> it was certainly nothing with too much esoteric weight, but definitely taught me about brotherhood and respect for others and things like that. So yeah, I, I see the value in it myself. And I really appreciate you joining me here today as we wrap up. Obviously, folks can follow up with you at your YouTube channel. The link to that is in the description. I imagine when your books are published, you will be releasing info about where folks can pick those up through your YouTube channel. So I alert people to hit that notification button when they subscribe to your YouTube channel so they can see when your books come out. I'm excited about them. But tell us a little bit about these projects you're working on before we wrap up. 
Sure. Yeah, I will definitely end up making a, a video announcement about each of them, maybe even a preview. I also very recently, I just I put a website together. It's just IkeBaker.com and all that stuff will be up there, too. There's a newsletter that started going out today on all those updates. And you can listen to my you can stream my podcast, watch my YouTube videos, read my blog all from that website. So IkeBaker.com. The books, so the one that's go, that's forthcoming in 2024 with Tria Prima Press, they've done like P.D. Newman's and, and Jamie Paul Lamb. There's a, a great new author named Nathan Schick. They're out of Phoenix, Arizona, and they produce quality material that really is founded on academic rigor, but is also not bound to that. So uh, that book is going to basically consist of a collection of essays on the Western esoteric tradition. And my goal with that book is to leave any would-be practitioner, somebody starting out in this stuff, with a very firm foundation and sort of direction markers for like where to go to learn this stuff. Where did it come from? What is this heritage? What is it based on? Show me the history. Show me the theory. Show me the practice. Give me the philosophy. I want to know where all this stuff comes from. It can't have just come from like a Disney movie or something like that, you know, or like like the folk imagination. No, as far back as you go, this has been with us. Magic has been with us forever. And the Western esoteric tradition, it's it's a foundational point part of human existence and the western esoteric traditions is a very long and well documented and it's only getting better we're only getting more scholars better erudition we're getting so many practitioners the ones that we had in the 90s i mean they've done so much work now you know uh, they're the output of really the old hat practitioners is amazing it's great stuff and so i'm trying to orient people towards this and away from the whole you know YouTube cult of pandering. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear, that it's all a new agey and everything's going to be fine and just don't try. Do it, you know, just relax, stay chill. You know, I've got news for you. The most spiritually developed people ever had no chill, zero, you know, to leave friends, family, civilization behind to make such a state definitive statement with their lives. You have no chill to do that. Chill is the opposite of what we want to cultivate in magic and true spiritual ascent. We want to be doers. We want to be active. You know, we should persist against tyranny and evil when and where we find it, but first in ourselves and then outside of us. And these are all teachings of the Western esoteric tradition. They go all the way back 2,500 years and more. So that'll be the first book. The second book is going to be on what I'm calling tentatively etheric magic. And that'll be released in 2025. Hopefully, I'm making a manuscript for Llewellyn. So hopefully, we'll be able to stick to that timeline. And that's going to be history theory, but mostly practice of what I have learned in my Eastern esoteric background and my training as an acupuncturist and, you know, traditional Chinese medicine uh, in herbalism, Taoist energy work, all those things. So that's going to be, I'm going to take what I learned there. And then the things that I have found in the Western magical traditions and philosophical traditions, things like alchemy, they 
are consonant. They're harmonious. They fit together like a lock and key, like missing puzzle pieces. And so I'm taking, you know, fortunately I have both pieces. And so I'm bridging those. And in Western magic, there is not so much of an established tradition and protocol, explicit protocol or systematic methodology behind energy work. It's kind of there, we dance around it, but this particular book, I'm going to give you the insights of my practical experience learning to see, feel energy, move energy around my body. You know, how, what kind of sight you use to see it. It's not, you don't use the same vision that you use to like look directly at things. So there's going to be a lot of that component to that one. So... Those are the two books right now, but also for anybody interested in the Golden Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, you're probably familiar with the Golden Dawn tradition and therefore the landmark series, The Light Extended, a journal of the Golden Dawn put out by Caribbean Press. Everybody in the Golden Dawn community that's been writing seasoned prose and just outstanding authors has been writing in this. There are four volumes. The fifth is coming out, and I am very thankful to be included. I have an essay in that on theurgy in the golden dawn and that's coming out i believe january so all that stuff will be posted on my youtube and my website and i want to thank you very much mark for having me this is your podcast is definitely one of my favorites not only recently i've gotten into it and listening to it but i just i love talking to you and i'm very thankful that you would you let me come speak with you Oh, man. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate that you've become a fan. That's great to hear. I'm curious to know maybe what your some of your favorite subjects are. Not that you need to tell me right now, but uh, yeah, dude, I would love to have you back on. There are a couple topics I can think of that maybe we can do some deep dives into, maybe even include Sky in here and maybe some others. I'd love to do more roundtable type episodes where everybody kind of contributes their take. Falconelli would be someone that I think the audience knows a bit about and everybody's sort of curious. I mean, it seems to get a lot of traction when I've done one or two episodes about him in the past and I still don't quite know much about him. So maybe you could join us for that, but. Absolutely. Yeah. 110%. I would love to have you on for season three of the Arcanum podcast, actually. So you just let me know if that's something you want to do. I want to hear more about your thoughts. Yeah, please. Let's set that up. And I do want to tell people, go and support Ike here at Arcanum on his YouTube channel. It's spelled R-A-R-C-A-V or N-V-M. <laughs> yeah, I think it's A R C A N V M. I was sort sort of foolish to, to typeset it with the Latin, you know, version. And, and once people get there, because they will get there, it's not that hard. I'll put the link in the description. <laughs> there's some great, there's some great interviews that you've done that I really encourage people to check out. I mean, just your latest season, you had Michael Greer, John Michael Greer, on who. I have a number of his books on my shelves and I'd be very interested in talking with him at some point. But uh, yeah, I mean, him, Mark Stavish, as you mentioned before, and so many other really interesting people. So folks, go and support Ike and get yourself into this 
I dare say, initiated content because it is above a certain level that you don't see typically on YouTube. So I congratulate you for bringing that to YouTube, this sort of the main street of this kind of content. And we all need to be there, but, you know, very often the algorithms suppress this type of truth-oriented stuff. So go and give Ike a follow, subscribe, all that good stuff. And yeah, anything else you want to add before we wrap up here? Just, you know, this was really fun. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Likewise. And with that, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into this episode with Ike Baker. And of course, whenever we have someone who's initiated into any sort of order where secrets are demanded, uh, we got to take what they say with a grain of salt, of course. But Ike strikes me as a stand-up guy. He was even kind enough to tell me his real name, which of course, out of respect, I will not reveal But of course, I should point out that um, his chosen pseudonym has a hidden meaning, which I thought was really cool. And who knows, maybe you out there have figured that out. And if so, email me. I'll tell you if it's true. I'll tell you the hidden meaning of Ike Baker. But Ike is a really cool dude. Like I said, told me his real name. Uh, We exchanged phone numbers. And yeah, I have no qualms with people who are initiates i am not an initiate myself i think we should all be open to understanding everyone's perspective no matter their choices and walk of life so long as they're not hurting people children especially right so (laughs) and uh as far as i can tell ike seems like a great guy so although there are some guests that we may have on this show that say oh all freemasons are bad and doing bad things i don't personally believe that i think it's very well possible that there are groups within freemasonry that do things that maybe go beyond uh, the realms of legality Uh, I, i don't doubt that at all whether or not people are being you know murdered or those sorts of crimes are being committed i don't know but it does seem like that sort of activity takes place, at least in some places in the world. Gangs, cults, secret societies, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, people tend to do sinister things, conspire together to do them in order to achieve some sort of power, right? And that's why I think it's better to understand the occult and esoteric fields so we can understand what we're working with here and understand the limits of what's really possible and maybe really understand what's going on Uh, again not speaking to the morality or the you know uh, the ethics of these secret societies but tons of people are suspicious right and i think historically there's good reason to be suspicious hence my research into uh, Yale and Skull and Bones so yeah don't be you know saying oh Mark look you're you know you're talking to these Freemasons blah 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 listen we need to hear everybody's perspective we need to talk to everybody to understand what's really going on and like I said uh, as far as I could tell Ike is a good dude and 
from that, I can extrapolate that not all Freemasons are bad. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a rational thing to, uh, you know, stand behind in this conspiracy community where those groups are often, um, you know, taking the brunt of the blame when it seems like those groups are more of recruitment fields for the more sinister groups, right? So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Uh, I'm sure you guys know this. I'm not speaking to children here. This is an adult podcast, and you are all adults. So if you have any problems with that or me interviewing Freemasons, feel free to email me about why. Maybe there are reasons why I shouldn't, but uh, I think Ike's a good dude. And uh, yeah, it's just, I think I need to point that out in light of maybe like a conversation with Paul Stobbs, who says that the Freemasons worship clowns and the clowns are Nephilim and yada, yada, yada. I don't doubt that. I don't discount that. Whether or not Ike does that, I think that's, you know, up to Ike to disclose or not. And based on my assertion it doesn't seem like he reveres clowns it seems to me like he reveres learned men who pursued uh, higher science I mean not even like science I think doesn't even really explain it it's it's almost like personification of the highest state that a human can strive to right I mean think about it in that terms maybe again I'm reducing it I have this tendency to do that but I, I think there's a ascension, a striving to ascend to a higher state of being that's natural in every person. And people find their own avenue to that ascension. Not everybody goes about that in a spiritual way. Some people's idea of ascension is uh, being a millionaire, right? And that's, that's how they live their life around those terms. Other people say having a happy family, that's ascending, right? So there are many ways to walk that path and I respect all of them. So speaking of a, a path to walk, terrible segue, I like to walk outside with my hit kit. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Cheap promo for the homie Garrett at the hit kit, hitkit.us, the hit kit on Instagram. Let me catch my breath here, folks. Been working all day had a long day and i know that when i'm working when it's time for a smoke break that i'm going to be able to reliably reliably reach into my pocket grab my hit kit find my lighter and whatever i'm ready to smoke so if you're like me you work hard you don't want the things in your pockets getting all ruined messed up crumpled up you know maybe you got a joint don't put that behind your ear so somebody can see it or so it could fall off put it in a head kit use promo code crazy at checkout to save 15% off your hit kit go to the hit kit on instagram or hitkit.us and of course i gotta give a shout out to all our patreon substack and rockfin supporters it's that time of the month folks make sure your debit credit whatever you have uh, in your Patreon account. Make sure that your card is good to go so you don't decline or lapse out at the end of the month. Uh, that usually happens to quite a few, at least a dozen people. So just want to make sure 
that I say that because we've been doing good. We got about 10% of the way to our Patreon goal, and I couldn't be happier to see that quick progress, but we're still obviously 90% of the way uh, still to go. So sign up on the Patreon. Once we get to 250 supporters, I will be doing one in-person interview a month. And you know what? Maybe you're not stoked on that idea. It's a flexible idea. And I really, I want to make this bonus show that I'm going to be doing for the people who support the show. So if you have a really great idea for something you'd like to see me do, maybe you want me to do Esoteric America, right? I mean, I've just been working a lot, haven't had a lot of time to focus on Esoteric America. And obviously with two co-hosts down, it's not uh, as easy as it was to do those shows. But we do have some people interested in being guests, and uh, I am planning on bringing that show back. But maybe we bring it back for the Patreon only. Uh, sign up on the Patreon. Send me a message. Tell me what you'd like to see for bonus content. Somebody signed up recently, and they're like, what is this? There's no bonus content here. And I will tell you, there's plenty of it. Uh, you just have to take the RSS feed and put it into whatever podcast app you listen to. And you're in luck if you listen to this show on Spotify because Spotify is now compatible with Patreon. So if you'd like to support the show and you only listen to podcasts on Spotify, please sign up to support the show and you'll have access to hundreds of more episodes bonus episodes from the illuminati confirmed episodes to episodes i did in the past and new episodes that are only available for supporters only and like i said i'm going to be putting more time and effort into that as we get more support on the show i mean don't get me wrong i'm grateful for the 150 people that we have but i want to pump those numbers up And in the past few weeks of me saying that, 10 or 15 people heeded the call. They they answered the call and signed up on Patreon. So shout out to those good folks who did that. Shout out to the original 150 who've been rocking with me for quite a while now. Some of you have been signed up for years because this show is in its second year now. Uh, Third year anniversary coming up this October. And yeah, I'm really stoked about it. I love this podcast. I I plan on doing it for a very long time. And one thing that comes along with doing a show like this is just, you know, having flexibility to try new things and uh, change the format up here and there as 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 I see fit. I mean, if you listen to one of the first 20 episodes and compare it to, you know, any of the episodes in the past 100 episodes, there's a big difference. And I like that. I like the the uh, record the record of the progress we've made as a podcast. So join us now. You'll still be in early on this amazing show. Who knows? Maybe you'll be one of the first 500 patrons, and then when we get to like a thousand or two thousand or five thousand patrons. There'll be some special perks for sure for the first 500 people that rock with me. Are you kidding me? Because listen, we get tens of thousands of downloads per episode. So that means there's tens of thousands of people that listen to this podcast. Out of those tens of thousands of people, 
There's definitely 500 people who could sign up on the Patreon right now for $5 a month. Really easy. And like I said, special perks. We're going to be doing in-person events. I mean, I'm connected with a bunch of other big podcasts, Tinfoil Hat, The Confessionals, The Higher Side Chats. I'm thinking with Alt Media United, we're going to do something big, right? We're going to do some kind of festival. Who knows what? But the more support we get, the, the bigger the budget becomes and the more possibilities and opportunities we have. So, like I said, sign up now, become a one of the founding 500, and I promise you there'll be some amazing perks involved with that founding 500 that's what i'm calling it so that's our our secondary goal there founding 500 we got to get there to the 250 first but hey who knows we can get a groundswell of people signing up on patreon and i mean if you guys do that i'll go out in public and i'll just scream to the heavens with joy and i'll record it uh, on an instagram live so look at that how's that folks so There it is. That's all for this episode. Go and support Ike Baker at Arcanum on YouTube. And have a great moment wherever you are in the now. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, my third eye's open and my chakras flowing. All seven channels in my spirit's flowing. Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean It's the eightfold path in the sacred lotus uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic records My ego's decomposing like a leper I'm Mega Casey going some levitation So with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship I'm weary from faking like an earthling While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry Studying my old selves like it's anthropology Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy As big a game as a paper-run economy I've been playing safe, but safest for the weak of heart Wait, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait Testing old theta frequencies I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds kick rocks Pandora let's talk uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats in the wolf
folks on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism, living in their vacant smiles uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person But the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service Can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, 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 wait.